Would you please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12? You can also look in your bulletin insert and you'll find the chapter printed on an insert with some place for notes at the bottom there, a short outline. We're at the last Sunday of this year and the last Sunday of this Ecclesiastes sermon series. It kind of feels like I'm saying farewell to an old friend. It's been a time of growth, a time of challenge. Uh, I started in the book of Proverbs and I thought, um, let's move on to Ecclesiastes. That makes a lot of sense. So I went from Proverbs to Ecclesiastes and I was thinking about the next sermon series and whether the next book was really for me, but I thought Song of Solomon would be great for Tony to tackle. I'm going to move to the New Testament and I'm taking the book of James as um, the New Testament uh, wisdom book that it is, and so I'm excited to, to start that book in the new year. But as we've been working through the book of Ecclesiastes, we see now the preacher, the Koheleth, is wrapping up his argument in the book. The preacher has been making his case for an honest assessment of the world in which we live. And his view of the ancient world is, is really in keeping with our view of the world today that we live in as he described this picture of life under the sun, this life and worldview that when you don't take into account God and his perspective from over the sun, the world and all we can see in it is pretty limited, pretty dismal. He uses this term vanity, uh, vanity of vanity. It's the word translated in verse 8 and it has appeared for the 37th time in the book of Ecclesiastes. And outside of Ecclesiastes, it only appears 33 other times. A concentrated look at vanity. What is this vanity? Vanity is a, a breath. It's a mist. It's a vapor. And as you come to it, you think it's there. You think it has substance. But as you reach for it, it passes right through your fingers. It's like a mirage in the distance. You think and hold out hope that that's what it's about. That's where I can find it. That's where purpose is. But as we close in, we realize it's not real. It doesn't have substance. And there's been so many things that the preacher has analyzed and considered and looked at in life. Is this where meaning is? Is this where I can find purpose? And everything has come up short. Everything he has considered has come up short. And it's become a weariness to the flesh, as verse 12 describes it. But we get some timely over-the-sun perspective as we look at verse 7 and verse 14. We learn of spiritual life that will actually transcend our earthly life. We learn of a final judgment that waits for us in the end. Here again, we find an over-the-sun perspective for viewing our world and the purpose that we have in it. Follow along as I read God's inerrant, holy, and inspired word. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look to the windows are dimmed, and the doors of the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, 
and all the daughters of song are brought low, and they are afraid of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you for the revelation of your will to us in the Word. We thank you that you have guided men of old to write down exactly what you would have them to say to us, both for their original audience and for us today. And Lord, as your Son Jesus prayed, we pray as well that we would be sanctified by your truth. Your word is truth. Lord, as we come to it, we need our eyes to be opened, our hearts to be open to the truth that it contains. Lord, as you illumine your word, I pray that you would also empower us by your Holy Spirit to live out the truths that we see, to be the workmanship that you've created us to be in Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray that we would hear from you today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this chapter, we have probably one of the most picturesque views of getting old, what it looks like to age. It's not all that beautiful, but we're going to unpack it in a minute. But I want you to guess the name of a person that I'm describing who I think typifies somebody in their old age, at least from a certain perspective. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheek, stiffened his gait, made his eyes red, his thin lips blue, and he spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. That man would be Ebenezer Scrooge from the Dickens tale. And he was visited by Marley's ghost. Marley was his partner in life. Now, I'm going mainly off of the Muppets Christmas Carol. So that's what I have in mind when I'm reminded of this. I don't think I even read the book. Let me just confess that. And there are other well, uh, very good versions of this, the uh, Jim Carrey version comes to mind as well. But these visits from Marley's ghosts are, is to warn Ebenezer that he will be visited by three spirits 
and he will be called on to mend his ways. If he does not, Marley warns that Scrooge will wear even heavier chains than he is wearing. The ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. Future was the scariest to me. That last one showed Scrooge where his greed and selfishness will lead to a lonely death, unpaid servants stealing his belongings, debtors relieved at his passing, and the Cratchit family devastated by the loss of Tiny Tim. The wake-up call spurs Ebenezer on to change his ways. He commits to being a more generous and compassionate person. He provides for the Cratchit family, and he donates to the charity fund. And in the end, he becomes known as the embodiment of Christmas spirit. What a beautiful tale. And this morning, as we look at the preacher in Ecclesiastes, we're going to see he's not using the same tactic that Dickens used, kind of that guilt and shame feeling and fear tactic to scare somebody straight so they change their ways or reform their ways. That's not what the preacher does in Ecclesiastes. That's only short-lived in real life. It doesn't last, that kind of motivation. What will truly motivate us to reform our ways and to keep God's commandments? It's when we fear the Lord in the way that the Scriptures tell us. And only a redeemed sinner can love and serve the Lord in the way that He intends us to do. Only God's glorious grace can rescue and reform us. So let's look at this passage and see how it is that we can be truly transformed. First off, life is short. Remember your Creator. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth is how this chapter starts, but we have to remember the context. In chapter 11, at the very end, we were told, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. So the young man, the youth has said, Rejoice, enjoy life. Of all the things that God has given us in life, they don't give us ultimate purpose. They don't give us ultimate meaning. They're not the bedrock and the foundation for life, but they are gifts from the God who loves us. And so enjoy them. Rejoice in God who gives good gifts. Praise the giver for the good gifts that he gives. But remember, there will be a judgment. Weigh how you use those good gifts. And in moderation, enjoy all that God has given. This chapter now, we're told to go from rejoicing to remembering. Remembering is a pretty strong word. In the Old Testament, this word remember is translated many times, and it's used for God. It's used for God remembering people. If you just start in Genesis, God remembered Noah. God remembered Abraham. God remembered Rachel. God remembered Rebekah, Isaac, Jacob. By name, we're told in throughout the Old Testament, that God remembers His people. What a comfort that is, that God remembers you. He knows you. We also read that God remembers His covenant. That's another repeated phrase. When you see remember, look for covenant. He remembers His covenant, His promise. His promise, it goes all the way back to the garden where He promised to send a Savior to redeem His people, to undo the curse. God remembered His covenant and act. He remembers His covenant and shows mercy. So we see God's 
work of remembering, but it's also used of people. It's, it's an encouragement for people throughout the Scriptures. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's not just a think about it, mere recollection memory. That is, be reminded of something. Put something into mind so that it changes your attitude and results in action. Your thinking and remembering of what God has done, of who He is, should transform who you are so that your attitude and actions are changed. It involves meditation on our Creator. What are we to remember? Remember also your Creator. Wow, just open your eyes this morning and look out the window and you can remember your Creator. It doesn't take an advanced degree. It doesn't take any special knowledge. Just open your eyes and you can do what Ecclesiastes 12 tells us to do. Remember your Creator. But tease it out. Pull it out. Put flesh on those bones. What does it mean to remember God as your Creator? He is the one uncreated Creator who brought all things into existence by the word of His power. That makes him different from anything and everyone else. He is the creator. Remember that about your creator. He is a powerful creator. Have you seen the spance of the, of the universe, the scope of our, even our own solar system, the size of the planets and the suns? It's amazing. And how he put all this together and the power that is at work in the earth's core. I mean, it's just unfathomable to see how much our powerful Creator can do. He is our precise and orderly Creator. Remember that about Him, that He put everything in its place, in its time, for its season, so that we're not too far from the sun, we're not too close to the sun. He's put water on this earth precisely in the amounts that we need so that we're not all swimming and we're not all in a desert. He did exactly as His design was. He's precise He's orderly. He's also present and sustaining in His creation. He didn't just wind it up and say, okay, good luck with that. God, our Creator, is present and active and moving, and He's involved in His creatures' lives. He's a present and sustaining Creator who is artistic. There's beauty everywhere. If you don't take a moment to notice the sunrise or the sunset, see the beautiful create creatures that he's made that walk across the ground, that fly through the air. We have a hawk in our neighborhood. Just recently, I was uh, going to the kitchen sink just to put something down, and I see right in front of the window, this cool hawk go by. God, in all of his artistry, put that animal together to do exactly what it does to glorify him, your creator. Remember your creator. He is a personal creator. And I want you to know this. He is the potter and you are the clay. He is the one that is forming and making and shaping you into what he wants you to be. And as those of us who are in Christ know, he is making you more into the image of his son. He has the perfect pattern and he's shaping and moving in our lives to make us look Christ-like. That's what our creator and redeemer is like. Can we remember him? Maybe in the busyness of Christmas, anticipation of the new year, maybe the rush to get schoolwork done before you take a break, you've missed out on considering 
remembering your Creator. Take some time to do that. This next section, he tells us kind of the why to remember our Creator in actually saying the when. He says to do this in our youth. We should remember our Creator in the youth, in our youth. And he gives this extended metaphor that demonstrates why we should remember our Creator in our youth. Life is short. Life is very short, and so get right to it. Get right to remembering your Creator now, because as the time goes on, it will be more and more difficult for you. It'll be hard. It'll be challenging. The way that he describes this aging process, it's so picturesque, and so we need to take a few moments to unpack these different uh, metaphors because they, they may be puzzling to us in the way that they're written. These things represent seasons of life and um, markers of getting old. Verse 2 says, Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. Simply saying, our eyes start to close, things get darker. We lose our vision. It's not as sharp as it once, once was. I know I could get some amens out there. You all know what this is like as I'm trying to read the paper a little bit better. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent. Many think the keepers of the house are, will be your hands or your fists to protect or guard the house. And as you get old, those hands start to tremor. They, they start to shake. And the strong men are those two legs that God has given you to stand firm, but as a while, after a while they start to bend, and then we start to be bowed over in our old age. And the grinders, they cease because they are few. You know what those are, right? The teeth, as you grind your food. And then there gets to be less and less of those grinders, and it gets harder and harder to eat. And so then, those who look through windows are dimmed. Your eyes are the windows of your body. Those start to, again, failing eyesight. The doors of the street are shut, shut and the sound of the grinding is low. And one rises up at the sound of a bird. Sleeplessness. Like in the morning, I heard that bird and it woke me up. I couldn't stay asleep. Sleep becomes an issue for us. Our desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And then quite literally, mourners go about in the street. The people you lived with, the people you um, grew up with, the people you know, you're going to funerals now. And there are mourners in the street that are attending their funerals. More and more it becomes a part of your life, a sign of old age as the people that are of your similar age are passing away. That almond tree is, oh, being afraid in verse 5 of what is high. You start to get this fear of falling, right? You have to think long and hard now. If I get down on the floor, how am I going to get back up, right? There becomes this fear of falling that takes place when we get old. And as the almond tree blossoms, if you know about almond trees, when they blossom, it's white, right? The white hair or the gray hair starts to show up. And then the silver cord is snapped, or oh, the grasshopper. The grasshopper is known for being able to jump and, and fly and move quickly. But a grasshopper, as it gets old, as it gets um, injured maybe, all it can do is kind of drag those powerful legs along and just creep. 
It gets to be sad how the body breaks down and the silver cord is finally snapped, the golden bowl is broken, the pitcher is shattered uh, at the fountain and the, bro- and the wheel broken at the cistern. That's the, the final stage. It's over. Life is cut off at that point. Now, this is going to happen to all of us, isn't it? Not necessarily. If God gives you more days, it will. But I just heard of a young man, 40 years old, diagnosed with a brain tumor. Two years ago, I had a friend who pulled out in his motorcycle on the highway and was struck dead just in a moment. There are people who think that they got a long time to go through these many stages of dying and they'll deal with whatever they need to deal with then, but right now, I'm strong, I'm fit. That's not me. You aren't guaranteed that you will go through those stages. So remember your Creator now, in your youth. But Pastor, I'm not young anymore. Well, start remembering now before you start forgetting. You know, the the, the sadness of the longevity that many people's lives go to is that oftentimes we lose our memory before we lose our physical capacities. We lose the ability to do what we're called to do here, to really remember our Creator because of age stealing that away. So now, act now. Don't wait. Remember the Lord now. At the age of 82, the hymn writer John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, lived the life of a slave ship captain, was radically brought to Christ by His amazing grace, and as he aged, his hearing went, his vision went, his memory started to fade. But this is what he said at the age of 82, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. If you can just remember that as you hit the, the, the final stretch, what a blessing that would be. Now, consider verses 9 through 12 of the wise and the careful words that the preacher puts together. It's kind of in the capstone chapter here. We're given this insight as to how this book got put together. The book of Ecclesiastes, but I think by extension, the Word of God. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he he wrote words of truth. Now, we see in verse 11 that these are words that are given by one shepherd. In my translation, that S is capitalized on shepherd, and I think rightfully so because I believe the one shepherd that has given us the word is God Himself. God has revealed His will through His Word. He has spoken through the prophets and the apostles, and they have written down exactly what He wants to communicate. So that one shepherd is the Holy Spirit who intended over every human author. So the words that are ultimately put down in this book by the preacher in Ecclesiastes were exactly the words that the one shepherd wanted to be there. What kind of words are they? They're words of delight. Have you read lately something in God's Word that brought you delight. I love during the Advent season all the joyful pictures of that, um, the birth of Christ 
uh, Christmas morning, we read, and it had to be out of the King James Bible. I said, Janie, let's get your King James Bible. We pull it out and we read, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. What a beautiful, delightful story to hear of what God did. Look to God's Word to bring you delight sometimes. But there are also times in which we need this word of truth, a word of delight, but a, a word of truth. And sometimes that, that truth, right, it smacks you right between the eyes because it's a truth you have been ignoring, but you need to hear, and God's word has it for you, and it speaks to you. And those are important words. Sometimes a brother or sister shares that with us, and we needed to hear that timely word from the one shepherd. Those words, verse 11, are like goads. Anybody have a goad lately? A goad is a stick used by a farmer, rancher, or shepherd to move an animal in a certain direction. I think they're battery-powered these days, at least the ones that I've seen, to move cattle along. But in the day of, the, of Ecclesiastes, a goad, let's say for an ox, would be a long stick pointing at the end, and you're trying to move that animal in the direction it needs to go, maybe to steer it out of danger's way. Maybe to move it to a place where it can be fed or a place where it could be treated or given some um, ointment. The Word of God acts as a goad. It pricks a little bit, but it gets you where God wants you to be. Praise God that His Word functions like that in our lives. The other thing is that the Word of God is like nails firmly fixed. Um, I want you to think not so much as a little metal nail you put into a two-by-four, but rather in the ancient Near East, this nomadic people, a nail could be best understood as a, as a peg, a tent peg. Imagine the peg that it would take to be hammered into the soil so that your tent could be firmly held down so that it could be fixed in place so that when the winds come and the sand blows, you're protected. You need firm nails. You need firm pegs to hold down your life. God's Word functions as that when we ground our lives on that Word because that shepherd who is the good, caring shepherd is the one that gives us His Word. He is the one who in John 10 says, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. We see Jesus as that shepherd, the one shepherd who gives us the word. Now, here's a warning, verse 12. He says, My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there's no end, and of much study there is weariness of the flesh. Now, some of you students are saying, Amen. Yeah, studying, weary. I'm done for that. Wait till next semester. But the writing of books, the making of many books, we have the one shepherd's book. We have the Word of God. This is all sufficient. It's given us everything we need for life and for godliness. And there are many other books outside of the Bible that can be useful to the degree that they square with the truth of the Word of God. But what tends to happen is that people get to writing, get to thinking, get to being innovative, and they write things that don't square with the Word of God. And so be careful, be cautious. Don't, don't set your heart to consuming that 
when what we have here in the Word of God is so rich, such a delight. It, it is such the truth that we need to goad us along to firmly fix us where we need to be fixed. Do you know Jesus, in His wisdom, as He preached that Sermon on the Mount, wrapped up with that illustration about the wise man and the foolish man, wise words that the shepherd gives, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man, built his house on the sand. The rains fell and the winds blew and the floods came and it beat on the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The wise words that God gives us in the Bible are only rock solid for those who put them into practice. Jesus says the wise person is the one who hears my word and does them. The foolish person hears God's word, he just doesn't follow it. And his house, who he is, gets beat up by the situations and circumstances of life like we all do. And his life falls because he doesn't live out of what he knows to be true. We see at the end, last two verses, that that life does have a purpose. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. I mean, we might say, preacher, why couldn't we have just gotten to this right at the beginning? Why do we have to go vanity, vanity, all is vanity, searching after the wind? Why do we have to look at all these things that have some promise of holding out purpose, but they, they really don't satisfy? Why did we have to go to, to riches and to, to wisdom and to other things that, that never really satisfy and then come to the point, all has been heard, fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. We needed to see what doesn't work, what is shifting sand, what is not of ultimate value, in order to appreciate what is of ultimate value, the purpose that God gives for us. It starts with fearing God. Fearing God, it's the beginning of wisdom, as we learned from Proverbs. But fearing God isn't the kind of fearing God that simply is in terror of God's judgment and condemnation. It does start there, and it has to necessarily, because if we're not in Christ, then we do stand under the wrath of God, and we will face eternal judgment for our sins. We should be afraid, very afraid. Not as afraid. We should be more afraid than we actually are. But that fear of punishment and of condemnation for those who are in Christ now is transformed. It's changed. Ed Welch, in his book, When People Are Big and God is Small, talks about the fear of the Lord on a spectrum that begins with that terror and dread fear, but then it moves, it shifts. He says, but this terror fear is only one end of the fear of the Lord. At the other end of the spectrum is a fear that's reserved exclusively for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. This fear of the Lord means reverent submission that leads to obedience, and it's interchangeable with worship, rely on, trust, and hope in. Like terror, it includes a knowledge of our sinfulness and God's moral purity. 
and it includes a clear-eyed knowledge of God's justice and his anger at sin. But this worship fear also knows God's great forgiveness, mercy, and his love. It knows that because God's eternal plan, Jesus humbled himself by dying on the cross to redeem enemies from slavery and death. It knows that in our relationship with God, he always says, I love you first. This knowledge draws us closer to God rather than causing us to flee. It causes us to submit gladly to his lordship and to delight in his obedience. This kind of robust fear is the pinnacle of our response to God. That's the kind of fear that the preacher says we need. That's the kind of fear that the God who made us, who loved us and sent his son for us, wants us to relish, to rejoice in. Fear God and keep his commandments. You you don't keep his commandments in order to be made right with God. You can't. None of us can measure up because none of us are perfect. Christ is the only one that has. But since Christ has, he's made you his new creation. And you are his workmanship. You're created in Christ for good works that he prepared beforehand. We should walk in them. Keep his commandments becomes the delight of our soul. But look, for this is the whole duty of man. It reminds us of the first catechism question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever? Yeah, I think that's wrapped up in this. I think that's a theme that overlaps with this. To keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's the duty that God has given us. But what's interesting is in the Hebrew, this phrase that's translated, this is the whole duty of man, the word duty isn't in there. You you could better translate it literally for this is the whole of man. Doesn't that help? It helps us to get freed from God's a taskmaster up there and he's got a job for you. And so because he's the creator, you're the creature, because he sent Jesus to die for you, he's got a list of, of, of jobs for you to do. Get busy with it. No, this is the whole of who you are, that God's created you to be, to be a worker and worshiper. And as we fear him and as we keep his commandments, then everything works according to his plan and purpose. The winds come and the waves beat against the house. The floods rise up, yeah. But your house is going to stand firm because you hear his word and you do it. Because of his grace, because of his great love for us. Paul captures this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, so whether we're home or away, he's talking about being at home with Jesus in heaven or being away where we're in this body. He says, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So the perspective of the preacher on this vain, under-the-sun world, it's as realistic as you can possibly get. It is clear-eyed. There's nothing rosy about the picture. It's the way it is, and that fits with what we see today, I believe. When we hear the news, when we look at the world, it's not a pretty picture. The world we see can be discouraging. It can be depressing. 
As the hymn says, this is my Father's world, oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. That's the over-the-sun perspective that Ecclesiastes brings. God's the ruler yet. Don't forget that. Focus on that. Remember your Creator. Remember His wise and careful words to you. We are called to remember, remember. Life has a purpose. God Himself calls us to fear Him and keep His commandments. Don't let pain, sorrow, discouragement, despair drowned out the true message of hope. On Christmas Day in 1863, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow continued to grieve the death of his beloved second wife, Fanny, who had died two years prior when her house dress caught fire. Longfellow himself tried to put out that fire, but he wasn't able to do that, and she didn't survive the accident. During the subsequent two years, Henry's oldest son would enlist in the Union Army to fight in the Civil War. And on December 1st of that year, he received a telegram that said his son had been shot during a battle and that the location of the exit wound from the bullet would put his son at risk of being paralyzed. This father of six, now widowed, worried about the future for his children, all while cannons thundered in the South. He captured his feelings as he heard the bells that Christmas day in the poem titled, Christmas bells. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet their words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth goodwill to men. Then from each black accursed mouth the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Longfellow and his feelings of despair that overcome him, they were overcome by what he chose to listen to. He chose in the midst of the vanity and of the toil and of the grief, amidst the cannons, amidst the fighting, amidst the hate, to listen to the bells of hope. We must choose to remember our Creator. We must remember our Redeemer. Let's pray. Lord, we remember you this morning as we do every Lord's Day in light of the pain and sorrow, the darkness of the world that we live in. We thank you for sending the light of the world to come into it. We know that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We remember that you, Jesus, were in the beginning with God, and that all things were made through you, and without you was not anything made that was made. We choose today to rejoice that in you, Jesus, is life, 
and the life is the light of men, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Shine in our darkness today. Reveal your glory and your grace to us in the cross anew as we come to your table again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.